Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. It's John chapter 17 um, that we've been studying the last couple of weeks, having um, insight into this longest recorded prayer of the Lord Jesus. And uh, fascinating it's been. Have you noticed the way in which we very often begin our prayers, if we pray at all regularly, Lord God, we, or Heavenly Father, we, dot, 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 whatever. And when you read Bible prayers, they hardly ever start like that. Bible prayers normally start Lord God, you. In other words, it focuses on the character and the purposes of God himself. We don't do that. We very often, uh, when we come into the place of prayer, we're focused much more on on our own needs or troubles or (laughs) worries or agenda or whatever. You... Bear that in mind, and whenever you come across a biblical prayer, you will see that that is very often the case. And one of the things that we've been seeing when we've been studying this um, exemplary prayer of the Lord Jesus is the way in which he is, although he does sometimes start, I, but then he was a member of the Trinity. Um, But the the whole center of gravity of his mind and heart as he he begins to pray is on the Father's purposes and, and plans and will. We've, we've seen, too, that this prayer running through John 17, I'm talking like this because I'm kind of summarizing, because this is the last of, of three, and there are guests who haven't been here in the earlier sessions. But Jesus had been ordering his prayer in a very careful way. In the first eight verses, for instance, he was rehearsing how he had brought the disciples, many of them, but he sifted down eventually to the 12, who became 11, how he had brought them to faith at the beginning. What he had done was simply to unveil their eyes and reveal God his Father to them. And then he had, once that faith was planted and started, this is what he does with us too, he had nurtured that faith with with his word, God's word. And then between verses 9 and um, 17, He prayed for the disciples' protection and survival in faith as he was about to go. He was returning um, to heaven, and so he committed them into the Father's care uh, to bring them through all the moral and spiritual dangers that would await them as they lived their life through to the end. And then, um, at the end of the section we were looking at last week, he prayed about the disciples' mission in the world, their responsibilities charged now with living as the people of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, uh, and he prayed for them so as to guard the secrets of their effectiveness as they uh, continue generation after generation on until they eventually came to the time when they should um, go home to heaven. And now we come to the last section, at the very end of the prayer. And you can see the way Jesus has been thinking and working. 
He started reporting back as to what he had done. He prayed for the disciples in the present. He began to pray about the disciples' coming work. And now, the eyes of his heart are way off on the far horizon. The end of the journey. He's looking forward to that day when his people finally arrive together back in heaven in glory. Let's have the text up. <clears throat> We're going to read from just the last bit, verse 24, to the end of the chapter. John 17, page 108.5. Father, he says, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. You have family gatherings sometimes. I mean, I don't know whether you do this, but uh, at Christmas time, the family all sort of gets together. People, um, <laughs> people love it and hate it, but um, often they love it at the beginning anyway. <clears throat> and people whom you haven't seen for months, that they arrive and uh, there's a sense of excitement and expectancy. The doorbell goes and they come in and there's presents and there's food and there's going to be stories uh, and all that sort of stuff. And you've been preparing and cooking and getting things ready for for a long time and the presents are under the tree. And great family gatherings at Christmas time and at other times in the year. Nothing to what is going to happen one day when all God's children from all over the world with their stories, with their scars, We'll all arrive together in that place that the Lord has been preparing for us. How utterly joyful, uh, united, ready, excited to be there that day is, is going to be. And so Jesus comes to the end of his prayer, praying about the ultimate, the sure, ultimate destiny for all of us. Because the Bible says that Jesus is the author of your faith, faith but he is also the finisher. A long time ago for some of you, when you began to be believers, decades, many decades, and looking around at one or two who are smiling at me knowingly. And the Lord has been faithful over all those years because he himself, who started stuff in you, is going to bring it to completion. He is the finisher of your faith. And what Jesus started with his preaching and then his suffering, he will finish with his prayers. And in this last section that we're looking at in the prayer, he's praying for two things. Firstly, at the beginning of verse 24, he wants all of his disciples with him. Father, he says, I want every last one with me. He doesn't just want you somewhere in a happy afterlife. That's not really his interest. He doesn't just pray that believers will make it safely one day through to heaven, although that's obviously implied. 
He wants everyone with him. Together with him. You remember from John chapter 14. Um, in my father's house, there's a lot of room, said Jesus. Earlier the same evening. He said, I'm going there to prepare places for you. And if I go there and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you there to be with me so that where I am, you may be. That's the whole point of it. I remember a few years ago being involved in, in an evangelistic series of, of meetings in Warwick University. And in the course of the week, I had loads of arguments. You'd sit in the students' union and people would blow smoke in your face and, and you know, breathe beery fumes all over you. And, and you'd try and talk about things. And so many people, one after another, uh, said basically this. They said, look, if I live a good life, why can't I go to heaven? Why do you, why do you keep bringing Christ into it as if he had anything to do with it? Surely God will uh, give me a place in heaven if I live an upright, good life. They completely missed the point. So the whole point of heaven is that Christ is there. It is to be with him that we go there. Wanting everything that God is willing to give us and yet excluding him was actually the very thing at the beginning of the Bible story in Genesis chapter 3 that set everything skewed and going wrong and fallen, as the theologians say. Adam and Eve, in the end, wanted what God had given, the beauty and the riches and the music and the interesting stuff, but they didn't want to listen to God or do things his way. And people try, then, to create heaven on earth without God. It's been tried politically, it's been tried uh, just by couples in the way they run their marriages sometimes. And when that obviously doesn't work, then they start to argue that God should give them heaven anyway, but stay well in the background himself. It is that rebellion in, in the human heart. And the whole point of the heaven that we look forward to and talk about is that Christ is there and it is to be with him. This is the great thing that, in the end, separates people who are those that believe and trust in Christ and those that do not. You know the story of the crucifixion and there was the thief on the cross dying just yards away, maybe two yards away from the saviour of the world who was also dying. They were united in that. And it, it was no quick death. A long drawn out process which we shall remember in the communion table. And Jesus said to that man, later today, you will be with me in paradise. And I don't know what the man thought. He, he was in agony. His life was coming to an end. But in the closing hours of the one life that he had, he met the most extraordinary man. And if heaven is to be with him, then he'll get through and he'll look forward to that and he'll go to be with Christ. That is the great Paul, uh, the apostle, on trial for his life, said in Philippians, I want to depart, actually. These chains, this prison, this standing in front of the possibility of being executed, I would actually rather go and with Christ. He said a similar thing to the Corinthians. He said, to be honest, 
there are times when I prefer to be away from the other Christians, <laughs> the body, and be with Christ at home with the Lord. That's the first thing that Jesus is praying for. His Father, see to it, will you? That all the believers from all over the world are with me in glory. And the second thing he prays, this is why he wants us with him. Look at the second little phrase in verse 24. So that we may see his glory. You are going to see it. You will see the glory, the unshielded glory, the extraordinary reality of the character and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ, which you don't really see now. You occasionally get a little glimpse of a a little low voltage bit of it. You are going to see his glory. And that's the second thing that he asks for. At the beginning of the prayer, he said, Glorify, Father, glorify me with the glory in your presence that I had um, before the world was made. And now he's praying, I want them all with me, and I want them to see all that. There was a poet, a uh, hymn writer, late 19th century, early 20th century, you can tell from the style of, of what this person wrote. They wrote this, face to face, face to face with Christ my Saviour. Face to face, what will it be when with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ, who died for me? Only faintly now I see him with the darkling veil between, but a blessed day is coming when his glory shall be seen. That is what Christians are looking forward to. Now, ask yourself, what will it do to you to see that, do you think, on that day? I think it will bring home to all of us what an astonishing thing it was to leave all that behind and come to a world of terrorism and darkness, a world of hunger, a world of child prostitution, a world of misery, a world of politicians who say one thing and do another, to come to a world that would eventually put him to death in order to serve first and then to seek and to save the lost people in their millions in the world that we have now turned it into. To leave all that and come and get your hands dirty and your heart broken in a world like that, because you love people. What is that going to do to you? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, said Paul to the Corinthians, that though he was rich, he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, you might become rich. What poverty he came to, and what richness is yours as a result? We will be utterly astonished and awestruck. But Jesus has another thought even behind that one. Because he says there, as we read on through verse 24, that glory that he had had in heaven had itself been an expression of the Father's love for him. The Father had loved him so much that he shared his entire glory with him. And Jesus wants us, in seeing this, to begin to grasp how much the Father 
loves him, so that it will start to dawn on you and me how much he loves us too. You see. See the way Jesus' mind is working. Father, I want them to see some of these things. The, the, great, the greatest relationship in the universe is between the Father and the Son. It is the great taproot of all reality and meaning and value uh, that there is in the entire world. And it's the source of all our hope and our destiny. The great and unbreakable love that the Father has for the Son and for those who are in Christ. All the protection that we need, all God's indwelling in us, all that ongoing commitment of God to us, it all flows from the Father's unbreakable love for the Son and the Son's love for those that the Father has given him and which he will not let go. You are going to see, if you're a believer, some utterly astonishing things which will make sense of a great deal of the pain and the puzzlement of life that you live now. And then as Jesus comes to the climax of his prayer, he makes a commitment. He doesn't carry on asking things. He makes a commitment. Right at the end, in verse 26, notice that he is making a pledge. Very similar to what he did in verse 19 earlier on. He looks for a moment briefly at the world around and he says, Father, the world doesn't know you. And how, again, we've been reminded of that recently. The world doesn't know you. It's sad and foolish in its ignorance. It has eyes, but it can't see. It tries to accomplish things by threatening people and killing people. It is in total rebellion. It refuses to recognize God's Son. It rejects God's love and forgiveness. It makes laws against telling people about God's love and forgiveness. That is the world. And when the Saviour came, it put him to death. And it hates all his servants. These verses and chapters have been telling us that. That's the world to Jesus. And he doesn't know you. And that is the root of its sadness and its where it's gone wrong. But I know you, Father, says Jesus. I know what you're truly like. Your love and your consistency and your holiness and your grace and your power. And these disciples standing around, these eleven, they know now that you sent me. How? Well, we've already learned. Jesus said, said, I have revealed your name, your character to them. And he makes now this pledge. He says, I'm coming to you, Father. I'm coming back to the glory that I had before I ever came to this place. And I've made you known to them. I've revealed your character. I've given your words. I've, I've walked away with them. They know. I now commit myself, he says, to going on making you known. That is the very um, center and, and core of life. Getting to know God. Because the Father has infinite riches of wealth and character and so on. Our greatest need in life is simply that, to get to know God. 
to have God reveal himself in us. Paul, when he was telling um, a little bit uh, in one of the letters, the, the letter to the Christians in Galatia, he was talking a bit about how um, God had set him apart somehow. He had marked him out. And then he called him. And then it has a very interesting phrase. This is Galatians chapter 1, around about verse um, 15, 16. He says, God was pleased, he was very pleased, to reveal his son in me. Actually in me. And then later on, Paul um, uses an astonishing phrase about himself. Those that have recently been through childbirth will (coughs) wonder at this. Paul says, I am again in childbirth myself. This is a male childbirth. Until Christ be formed in you, revealed and, and shaped and be formed in you. This ongoing revelation of God within our own being. That's the source of refreshment, of purpose, of daily life. You go off to tomorrow morning, Father, please, <clears throat> I know you, I love you, but reveal more of yourself to me. In the midst of the dust and the dirt and the life that I have to, uh, to live. As you read something from the word of God, as you listen to scriptures being talked about, as you listen to Christian music, some are more into that than others. Father, reveal yourself to me. Because that is the great concluding purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ. His pledge at the end is to keep on revealing God to us. Using as he has started both the, the word of the Father and the circumstances in which we, we go through. So when you look at, at colleagues and you look at the children that you have to teach and you look at the bank balance and you look at all the stuff, in the midst of all the business of life, Lord Jesus, you promised, show me yourself, show me your faithfulness, show me what you want me to do, show me what you're like, show me how to live like like you. And the reason that he gives, <clears throat> end of verse 26, in order that they may grow into a community that reflects the Trinity. That's what he means. That the love that God has for Christ will be in them, and that Christ himself will be in them. This is the great heart of a missionary church. Every individual seeking and experiencing through the word of God and in the midst of of their own spirit-directed circumstances, the ongoing revelation of God to their own souls. So that God's very own love is alive in them. I remember some years ago, she used to come here for a while to this church, but she moved away, she went to London. And... um, she was stirred up in her heart. She wanted to know more. She decided to go along to a local church. She joined an Alpha course. And um, she went ten weeks. And then the Alpha course came to an end and she started going along uh, to the church on Sundays. She went for three months. And nobody said a single word to her. She'd come in, she'd sit down, she'd listen, she'd get up, she'd stand around for a bit. Nobody would speak to her, and she left. And at the time, she was going through all kinds of difficulties in her, in her relationships and, and her home. She tried then joining a house group. She thought, well, maybe that's a step I should take. And, and she got herself put into one, and she went to talk to the leaders, and she poured out her heart about her troubles and so on. And they never followed up on any of it. They never inquired later on how she was doing. She felt totally abandoned. She stopped going. Now, she'd understood the alpha course. 
She just needed the love of God. Which would have made all the difference. You see what Jesus is praying? He says, I am going to commit myself to going on revealing you so that the community may become more like you. Earlier on this year, I was speaking in a church in Northern Ireland. And they'd asked me to go over there and talk about, thou shalt not murder. It's quite fun, actually. But what I didn't realize, was sitting at the back in the corner, more or less sort of over in that corner, was a murderer. Um, who had uh, grown up in Protestant, um, loyalist Belfast, and had developed uh, a deep hatred for people of a Catholic background, he didn't know that many, but he just knew that he hated them. And he had um, walked up to someone he knew was a Catholic um, at a bus stop and shot him dead. Didn't know who he was. Just wanted to kill Catholics. And he was put in prison. He did, um, I think, 14 or 15 years uh, in the Mays prison. He'd gone in as a hardened loyalist murderer. Came out totally transformed. Because he had met people in the maze prison who were so, so different. Catholic, Protestant, and Northern Irish nothing. There aren't many of them, but, the, you know, a few. <laughs> and and they, they had come to Christ. And he found there amongst those folks a love and an acceptance among the true Christians that he never found in, in his sort of background, and it melted the iceberg of his heart, and he, he came to Christ. And he joined this church, and there he was sitting at the back, listening to me, who knows very little about murder, <laughs> talking. I was very encouraged by him at the end. He said I'd explained things pretty well. Um, it was the reality of Christ, exactly the thing that we're thinking about in the Biblical and Studies, uh, Theological Studies Fellowship tonight, God actually living among people. That is what Jesus is, is praying for. To be the people amongst whom God dwells. So we come to the conclusion of the journey that we're on. And as we um, meet around the Lord's table here, we, we know, don't we, that this little meal is temporary and it's a kind of meal on the journey. And we are reminded in the very text that, that we are instructed to do this in Scripture, and it is a temporary thing until Christ himself comes back. And as you meet around the table, as you pass bread and wine from one to another, as we sing together, as we are led in prayer, and as the prayers of our own hearts um, arise to the Lord in heaven, may we be conscious of the love of God in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. There really was no worse place that anyone could come to on this planet than to be skewered, crucified, dying under the weight of the entire world's sin. And at that moment to experience the breaking of that greatest of all relationships between the Father and the Son. Father, why me now? And it was because of his love for us. And as we do so, to be conscious of the presence of God, promised and experienced, sifting us, challenging us, urging us, as we've been singing, to a life of 
of holiness. We seek in our own souls here another layer of the revelation of God's character. That he is actually like this. I was brought up, um, as many of you know, in a, an Anglican environment. My dad was an Anglican minister. And I can remember um, many, many times um, going to the, the communion rail. I used to do it in that, in that kind of way. And uh, you'd be given a little bit of bread. Um, and these words from the prayer book um, were always uh, spoken and, and rang in our ears. Feed on this in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Feed on this scripture. Feed on this prayer. Feed on, on this great vision and these unbreakable promises that God has. Feed on these things as you feed on bread and drink wine. In your heart, right near to the place where you, you make your choices, the things that determine your character, by faith and with great thanksgiving. God our Father, your Son is the most extraordinary, wonderful, beautiful, challenging, utterly committed Saviour that we could ever imagine or ever need. You are a great God and we thank you that he is a perfect Saviour. And we confess our need, our sin, the hatred that sometimes lies in our own beings too. We're not that much holier than people who cause mayhem. But we thank you for the Saviour we've discovered. Reveal him more and more. And reveal yourself more and more in us, we pray. And help us to feed on these things with faith and with thanksgiving. For your name's sake. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.